from the beginning of our retreat, uh, we've talked quite a lot in relation to this topic of emptiness about cause and effect. In a very early talk, uh, Gill talked about this general form of dependent arising, when this is, that is, when this is not, that is not. We've uh, often alluded to the Four Noble Truths, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, the way leading to the end of suffering. Sally talked about the Twelve Links of Dependent Origination, the step-by-step causes that lead to suffering. So there's a reason that this has been a significant theme running all the way through. And I wonder if you've reflected on why that is. Sorry? Cause and effect. We're getting there. Why cause and why is cause and effect such a significant theme in terms of emptiness? I think it's because, of course, it's the way that the Buddha saw generally. When we take the I out of our understanding of the universe, then we see that there are just phenomena arising and passing according to causes and conditions. When we have the whole universe mapped onto the I view, we think there's an agent in the center of everything, that everything revolves around and is somehow influencing it, causing it, making it unfold, keeping it going, etc. When we see that that I isn't at the center of everything, then we really see how everything comes and goes according to its own causes and conditions. And that's what the unfolding of the universe is. Empty phenomena rolling on. So we come this evening to another of these areas of uh, cause and effect, one of the other great laws that uh, the Buddha talked about again and again, and that is the teaching on karma, the cause and effect of karma. As we head back into uh, daily life, our main field becomes not the field of silent contemplation, although we hope that still continues, both on the cushion and off. But much more of our attention has to go into the field of action. So it's really helpful at this point in the retreat as we near an end to take a closer look at this field of outer action, actions of speech and body, and how they depend on actions of mind. So that's kind of the theme of the talk this evening. Also tying it into the Eightfold Path, you know that the first spoke of the Eightfold Path is right view. And that's the beginning of the section on wisdom. The Eightfold Path consists of three sections, one on wisdom, one on ethical conduct, one on meditation. It begins with right view. If we don't understand something, we won't take the rest of the steps. So it begins with right view, and the middle section is on conduct or action. What's the appropriate action to further the path. And the Buddha spells these out as right speech, right action, right livelihood. So what's the link between right view or understanding and right action? There's one other piece of the Eightfold Path that goes in between those two. Anybody remember? Intention. Right intention is the second. So right view, right intention, and then right area of right action. So intention provides the link between our understanding and our action. As we understand the world, so we act in it. And one of the key elements of right view or right understanding is the teaching on karma. So the Buddha is basically saying if you want to act appropriately in the world and use your actions to further your, your path, further your awakening, then right intention is the key component from understanding that makes that link. You know, I think it's for this reason uh, that the Dalai Lama made this statement, and I can't remember if we mentioned this earlier in the retreat or not. Gil might have mentioned it earlier, that uh, somebody asked him, um, I'm going to be speaking to Westerners about Buddhism, would it be better to talk to them about emptiness or about karma? 
He said it'd be better to talk to them about karma. So we may have been wasting your time this week. We could have, you know, we could have gone here a lot sooner. Because this is so important in the field of action and then as it affects our whole path, it's important to, to understand this properly. So I sort of think of karma as the science of happiness. If we want to be happy, what action should we take? This is really the point of the teaching. and This is the cause and effect relationship. What leads to happiness and what leads to unhappiness. One of the things I have to say in, in um, talking about karma, it's a field that uh, a lot of it I can't verify from personal experience. So I'm going to tell you some of the things the Buddha said about it which he said that he could verify from his own insight. But it takes an extraordinary mind to be able to verify the workings of karma through direct experience. I'm not that person. So my aim is to let you know what his teachings were, and then you can figure out how you want to relate to it. I don't think it's my job to convince you, only to let you know what he said although I think it would be to everyone's benefit if we, did, if we were convinced. So that's my, that's my intention, just to let you know what he said. So I'm going to talk about basically four aspects um, in the talk tonight. One is what karma is, how the results of karma appear or happen, how karma directly relates to emptiness, and what's involved in the ending of karma. These are kind of the four topics for the talk. So the word karma you probably know is Sanskrit. The Pali word is kama. I might use either one tonight. And the word, again, is one of those simple words that the Buddha uh, took. It just means action. In Sanskrit or Pali, it's just an ordinary word that means action. And in the time of the Buddha, all these different philosophical schools had lots of different views and opinions about action. Action matters, or it doesn't matter. There are consequences to action, or there aren't any consequences to action. Action is determined already, or there's free will in action. And all these uh, different philosophers and spiritual teachers would debate about all these points, but nobody really seemed to know. The Buddha came along and made a a unique contribution to the understanding of what action pivots on, and this becomes the meaning of the teaching on karma in in his teachings. And that is that he pointed to the crux of it as being this quality, the mental quality of volition. Or sometimes we say intention, but be aware it's a different word than the intention in the Eightfold Path. That's... Right intention in the path is samasankapa. Volition here is the Pali word chetana. But I might use volition, I might use intention. But as I'm using them in the rest of the talk, I'm referring to this factor that's involved in karma. This is quote 66 on the last page of the handout. Volition, O monks, is what I call action. For through volition, one performs the action. Synonyms for volition, uh, intention, urge, impulse, motivation. So you kind of get the sense that what the Buddha is pointing to is the mental force or emotional force that drives the action to take place. This impulsive energy that the action comes out of. Some energy of mind or heart that makes action happen. The word karma refers to what we do in the present moment. You know, we've heard this phrase, instant karma. It's kind of entered the pop culture. But that's really a pointing to the result, and that's a different word. That word is vipaka. So we talk about karma and then vipaka, its result, which comes later. Karma is just the action in the present moment. And the Buddha considered, this was his teaching, that actions are skillful or unskillful depending on the quality of the volition. 
If the volition's a wholesome one, the action is skillful. If the volition's an unwholesome one, the action is not skillful. And he said that the roots of the unwholesome are our three old friends, greed, aversion, and delusion. So actions that are influenced by or under the spell of the kilesas, greed, aversion, and delusion, are considered to be unwholesome or unskillful actions. So given what we've been talking about this week, when greed, aversion, and delusion are operating, that's what we've been describing as craving or being caught up in the self. This operation of these kilesas makes the feeling of self, brings about craving and therefore clinging, and they blind us to seeing clearly. When we're under the spell of greed, aversion, delusion, we don't see so clearly. When these are absent, or at least weaker, and we have non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, we could put those in positive terms, and that means that the forces in the mind are non-greed, more like generosity or letting go. Non-aversion or non-hatred is more like loving-kindness. Non-delusion is wisdom. So the wholesome roots of action, when the mind is being shaped by generosity, by loving-kindness, by wisdom, then we trust that the action that comes is a wholesome action coming out of those volitions, those, those roots. The Buddha described the action that he's talking about as happening in three spheres. Body and speech, clearly, that's what we normally take as action. But he also talked about mental activity as being action of mind. So the three spheres of mind, speech, and body are all in the area of karma. So even thoughts and emotions have karmic weight and can be either wholesome or unwholesome. Now, just so that we wouldn't have to always be examining our volition to see what things to do or not to do, the Buddha also talked about a list that he called the Ten Unwholesome Actions. So this is really helpful because it makes a very clear guideline of what he suggested not to do, to refrain from. So the Ten Unwholesome Actions are divided in spheres of body, speech, and mind. There are three actions of body, four actions of speech, and three actions of mind that the Buddha talked about as being unwholesome. The three actions of body are uh, killing, taking what's not given, and uh, sexual misconduct, harming others through our sexual energy. The four actions of speech are saying what's not true, using harsh or abusive speech, speaking maliciously of others to uh, weaken someone's reputation in another person's eyes, and wasting time in idle chatter and gossip. And then the three actions of mind considered unwholesome are covetousness, ill will, and wrong view. And you can probably see how those kind of match to greed, aversion, and delusion going on in the mind. And by the way, one of the aspects of wrong view is not believing that actions have consequences. It's not believing in the teaching on karma. In a way. And then the ten wholesome actions are to re- refrain from the ten unwholesome actions. So this is how to keep our conduct let's say, in the happy direction in daily life to refrain from the ten unwholesome actions. You'll notice that the first four precepts show up in here. They're the, they're the three actions of body and the first of the action, actions of speech. The fifth precept, curiously, does not show up anywhere in this list. And so that's to refrain from uh, the use of drugs and intoxicants that lead to heedlessness. And 
One can speculate on why that doesn't appear in the list, but one possible explanation, and I don't know if this is the case or not, is that the use of drugs and intoxicants becomes problematic, particularly when it leads to one of the ten unwholesome actions, as it tends to do when the intoxication starts to take place. So I think that's the connection with the fifth precept. So as you go back into daily life, as we all go back into daily life, this field of action becomes really uh, important. Our, our actions on this retreat have been so circumscribed, have been so limited, that we took the five precepts. They're fairly easy to keep in this setting. But as we go back into daily life, living gets more complicated, and all these other uh, possibilities arise for us. So the Buddha stressed again and again Take real care with the precepts. For monastics, training in the precepts was a really central part of the whole path. When the Buddha talked about his teaching, he didn't generally just call it the Dhamma. He called it the Dhamma Vinaya, the Vinaya being the code of uh, monastic discipline. And if you, if you know people who practice in a, in a monastic form in our tradition, they pay a lot of attention and refine their practice of the precepts to an extraordinary degree. Take great care around the observance of those. So for us also, if we're in daily life, the more care we take with these, the greater the um, contribution to our well-being will be. The Buddha said that one who is really careful in his or her conduct enjoys a special kind of happiness that he called the bliss of blamelessness. It means that we we don't regret our actions because we're really careful in our practice of non-harming in relation to other human beings, in relation to creatures, in relation to the earth. And he spelled out the reason why this bliss of blamelessness is so important in connection to precepts like this. He said that discipline, taking on a discipline like these guidelines, is for the sake of restraint. Restraint is for the sake of freedom from remorse. Freedom from remorse is for the sake of gladness. Gladness is for the sake of rapture. Rapture is for the sake of happiness. Happiness is for the sake of tranquility. Tranquility is for the sake of concentration. And concentration is for the sake of knowledge and vision. And knowledge and vision is for the sake of liberation. So keeping these guidelines carefully enables our mind to settle. Enables us, when we come to the cushion, not to be plagued by regrets about our past actions or conflicts that we may have contributed to in daily life. And that lets us settle in a a deeper kind of peacefulness, an inner lack of regret and remorse, and that's a gateway to happiness, and happiness is a gateway to more development. You know, I'm always kind of interested in what degree of refinement is possible in these precepts. Because mostly, you know, as lay people, I kind of assume we're all going to break them sooner or later. And so I don't have too high of expectation for myself. I try to do it really well. I don't have too high an expectation that I'll be perfect. But then you meet somebody like the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama came on, uh, no, he wasn't on the show was interviewed by Oprah Winfrey a few years ago. It was for publication in the magazine O. And I really appreciate what Oprah does, especially in the magazine, because she brings so many, you know, wholesome ideas of inner work, you know, therapy, counseling, diet, nutrition, exercise, self-care, to a very, very broad audience, you know, both through her TV show and through her magazine. So here she was presenting the teachings of the Dalai Lama. It was an interview that got published in O. And I'd just like to read you a bit of the exchange. 
Oprah started by asking the Dalai Lama, have you ever had to forgive yourself for anything? The Dalai Lama replied, small incidents, like accidentally killing an insect. Killing an insect, Oprah said. Hmm, okay. The Dalai Lama continued, my attitude toward mosquitoes is not very favorable. Not very peaceful. Bed bugs also. And that's it? Oprah couldn't quite believe what she was hearing. In your lifetime, that's what you have to forgive yourself for? Small mistakes every day, maybe, the Dalai Lama said evenly. But major mistakes, it seems, no. No major mistakes, Oprah repeated, mulling over the idea. She fell silent and looked out the window. There was awe in her voice when she finally continued, You have nothing in life that you have regrets about. That's a great life, to have no regrets. Regarding service to Tibet, the Dalai Lama said, Service to Buddhism, service to humanity, I have done as much as I can. Regarding my own spiritual practice, when I share my experiences with more advanced meditators, even those who have spent years in the mountains practicing single-pointedness of mind, I don't lag too far behind. (laughs) So I hesitate to say that this is exactly where freedom from remorse leads, but it certainly goes in this direction. And he's only had about 14 more lifetimes than us to practice it, so he's a little bit ahead of most of us. So this is the area of karma, taking care with the, with the outer action and the intention. And then the Buddha also talked about what happens, what are the results of taking that care. This is the famous uh, passage that's the opening of the Dhammapada, where the Buddha says, Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. Speak and act with an impure mind, and sorrow will follow you like the wheel of the cart follows the oxen. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. Speak and act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you like your shadow, unshakable. This is the basic message of the teaching on karma. Wholesome actions lead to wholesome outcome, that is, happiness. Unwholesome outcome, unwholesome actions lead to unwholesome outcome or suffering. That's the, that's the basic message. So again, this is one of the fundamental laws of cause and effect that works in the universe according to the teachings of the Buddha. So you can see that this is in also the form, that general form of dependent arising. When this is, that is. With the arising of this is the arising of that. It's just another form of that general teaching on cause and effect. It's kind of interesting that karma has become a, a common word in the culture today, even if it's not quite clearly understood yet in the West. At least it's got kind of a fluency. A few years ago, I was teaching a class at a, at a juvenile hall in, in San Mateo with James Barres. We'd gotten an invitation from one of the nurses who worked with the kids to come in, and so we offered a six-week meditation class to them. And we were in the maximum security unit of juvenile hall. And if you're not American, you might not know. This is where young people are held who are below the age of 18 and not yet ready to go into the adult jail system before, they, before they're on trial. So they, they were all awaiting trial. They were under 18 and they were awaiting trial. And in the maximum security system, they were charged with things like Um, assault, grand larceny, attempted murder, murder. And some of them were 16, 17 years old. So they were in for really serious things. And you can imagine what it's like being that age, tossed into, you know, this holding pen, not knowing when your trial's going to come, not knowing what the outcome is going to be, and the fact you could be sent away for the next 20 years of your life. So think of the anxiety 
that those boys would be living with and the, the state of fear that you know, they probably experienced. And then combined with the fact that there are probably some, some fairly aggressive characters in that mix. And then you've kind of got a mix of fear and aggression that's a really hard thing to probably to live with and the uncertainty about their future. So we went in and taught the meditation and we taught it pretty much like we do uh, in classes here. We started with the breath, we went into the body, and then we went into emotions. So we taught them how to bring mindfulness to their emotions and in doing that, that it was possible to create some space. And some of them became really motivated meditators. One, because they had a lot of time on their hands. But two, because they really needed the tools. You know, they would lie down in their beds at night. This fear would just be going through their body. And they didn't know, of course they didn't have any tools to deal with it. And mindfulness gave them a way to deal with it. So they started to get a little receptive to us. I mean, here we were. We were, you know, two old middle-class guys, not exactly in their social milieu. But um, after a few weeks of hanging out together... You know, we developed some, some contact. So toward the end of the retreat, I said to James, should we teach about karma and sila? Because it seemed kind of important. And you know, we said, do you think they'll be open to it? So I said, I don't know. Let's give it a try. So I was speaking that day. And I said, uh, I want to teach you about the science of happiness so that you will understand you know, throughout your life what things will lead to happiness and what things will lead to unhappiness. And this teaching is about the law of karma. Are you familiar with this term? And one of the young guys put his hand up and said, you mean what goes around comes around? <laughs> and he, that was it. He nailed it. He, he knew exactly what it was about. So instinctively, there's a lot of understanding of this term in, in our world today and um, some openness to it. So this is a very interesting thing because um, the Buddha taught it as a universal law. And it, in his teaching, it's really clear it doesn't matter whether you know about this law or not, it applies. It doesn't matter if you believe in it or not, it applies. It doesn't matter if your religion believes in it or not, it applies. And it doesn't matter if your culture believes in it or not, it applies. Expecting um, that the law of karma wouldn't happen would be like expecting an apple would come off its stem and not fall to the ground, you know, as though the law of gravity could be suspended. So you see this in a lot of Buddhist teachings in the Tibetan tradition, they have uh, also the four Brahmaviharas, as we do, love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. But they call them the four immeasurables. And they have a phrase for each, just as we have phrases for them. But their phrases are slightly different. Their phrases for love and compassion express the teaching of karma within them. So the Tibetan phrase, and by the they call them the four immeasurables because they're boundless states. The first of the four immeasurables is loving-kindness, and the phrase in the Tibetan tradition is, um, may all beings have happiness and the cause of happiness, which is virtue. And the compassion phrase is, may all beings be free from suffering and the cause of suffering, which is non-virtue. So the teaching on karma is woven in in that tradition to the Brahma-viharas. So one of the, um, the challenges for us as, as Buddhist practitioners in the West is how do we come into relationship with this teaching? Because it's basically a foreign idea to the Western mind. And I'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. But what if it is a universal law? You know, do, do we start to trust in it? And this question of trusting in universal laws, uh, it's really kind of interesting to see people who are willing to kind of put their life on the line in something that they believe in. And there was a good example of this some years ago with the Cambodian monk Mahagosananda. 
Mahagosananda passed away just a few years ago, but he had become the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. So he was probably in his 70s at the time he died a few years ago. One of the reasons he became the patriarch is that he was not killed in the uh, Khmer Rouge's uh, genocide. Remember when Pol Pot came to power in the 70s and the Khmer Rouge uh, decreed year zero? And to start the society off from year zero, they killed all the monks and most of the educated people, scientists and teachers and so forth, to return people to the agrarian roots. So there were 60,000 monks in Cambodia at the time. And at the end of the Khmer Rouge's regime, there were only a few thousand. And I actually, I don't know how they survived. But Mahagosananda survived because he was living in Thailand. He was practicing with Ajahn Damodaro down in the, the south of Thailand, studying and practicing uh, Vipassana while all of that happened. And while that was happening in Cambodia, something like all 16 of his family members were killed. We lost his whole family to that reign. And then at some point in the late 70s, Pol Pot got deposed. And then Cambodians started to, uh, those who had fled the country started to come back in. And there had to be refugee camps set up along the Thai border. So thousands of Cambodians were now also coming, trying to come out of the war-torn areas of Cambodia and some coming back in the country, coming from both directions, were gathering in these refugee camps along the border with Thailand. So Mahagosananda moved there to begin teaching them. I can't even imagine what it would have been like to be in those refugee camps. Probably most people had lost relatives, close family members, friends in the genocide because something like a million people out of six million died during that time. So everybody there would have had their hearts broken. They would have probably been enraged at what they'd, what they'd witnessed. And Mahagosananda's task was to minister to them, to bring the, the healing message of the Dharma back to people who had lost their whole monastic order, lost the Buddhism in their country. So what he conceived was that there needed to be reconciliation first and foremost, that nothing could proceed if the antagonism and conflict continued. So one of his main teachings was that he printed up these pamphlets with a chant in Pali, which many of the people had heard years before when they had been um, living in a Buddhist culture and could remember that said this other great verse from the Dhammapada also considered uh, of the law. Hatred never ceases through hatred. Hatred only ceases through love. This is an ancient and eternal law. So Mahagosananda would hold these services once a week and hundreds of people, maybe thousands, would come to attend and he'd teach through loudspeakers. But mostly what he wanted to get all the refugees doing was chanting this Pali verse. Hatred never ceases through hatred. Hatred only ceases through love. There were still Khmer Rouge in the camps and uh, there started to be death threats against him because they could see how much power this old monk had with people, how much respect and love he had. So there were death threats against him. So some of Mahagosananda's supporters um, collected money. I think it was probably Western, Western workers collected money and said, we need to get you to France. You go to France, you'll be safe. You won't be killed. Look, we've collected the money. Here's the money. Go to Bangkok, buy a plane ticket, and get to Paris. You'll have safe haven. So Gosananda took the money, took the train to Bangkok. But a few days later, he came back. He said, what happened? He said, well, we were running out of brochures, so I got some more brochures printed up. 
that say, hatred never ceases through hatred. He had 10,000 more brochures and passed all those out through the camp. That was his trust in this law, this eternal law. So when the Buddha was talking about the results of action, uh, he put it pretty strongly. He said, beings are owners of their actions, heirs of their actions. Their actions are the womb from which they are born. Their actions are their friend, their refuge. Whatever acts they perform, for good or for ill, of that they will be the heirs. This is the way the cause and effect relationship is understood. Notice in this passage, the Buddha is not talking about the five aggregates. He's talking about beings. So just to be aware that this is not one of the passages that is pointing to the emptiness of things, this is one of the passages that's talking about relational activities, how we relate in the world. And that's a case where you don't need to look at the breakdown into the minute parts. So Westerners often feel some resistance to this message on karma, saying that um, beings are heirs of their actions, as though it implies that if someone is um, happy, that's their doing, and if they're unhappy, you know, that's also only their, only their doing. As though, you know, beings maybe deserve the suffering that they've got. And that can seem like a really heartless view. You see someone in suffering, you say, oh, that's your bad karma. You know, too bad. (laughs) But that's a distortion of the teaching. First of all, there's no concept of deserve in karma. It's like the apple didn't deserve to fall to the ground and get smushed. That's just what gravity does. But also the Buddha didn't have any idea that beings deserve to suffer. Do you remember the story of Angulimala? Angulimala was a spiritual practitioner whose teacher told him, because he wanted to get him in deep trouble, to collect a thousand fingers from people that he murdered. So Angulimala went out in the forest and started accumulating these fingers, which he wore on a necklace around his neck. Um, Anguli means finger, mala means necklace. So he wore this finger necklace, and he got up to 999. He only needed one more. And the Buddha was walking by Angulimala's area on that day. People told him, don't go there. Angulimala will take you as the thousandth victim. And the Buddha said, I don't think so. So the Buddha walked by. Angulimala tried to catch him, to kill him. But through, it said, through his psychic powers, the Buddha kept walking and Angulimala couldn't ever catch up to him. And finally, Angulimala shouted, Stop! Stop! And the Buddha turned around and said, I have stopped, Angulimala. Now you stop. Your mind is on fire with greed, hatred, and delusion. Now you stop. So they met. Angulimala said he'd never met anyone who wasn't afraid of him before. So they met. If there was anybody in the whole range of the suttas who deserved to suffer, I would have thought it would be Angulimala. The Buddha didn't see it that way. He taught him the Dharma. Angulimala practiced sincerely and with great effort. In a fairly short period of time, it said, he became fully awakened. He became one of the arhats. So the Buddha wanted him to come out of his suffering. There's no concept that beings deserve to suffer or should suffer, but sometimes the law just takes us there. And the other view that um, sometimes corrupts this is, oh, that person's suffering is of their creation. Oh, so that's their problem. That's not my problem. That's also not what the teachings say. Compassion wants to alleviate suffering wherever it sees it. It doesn't matter what the causes are. The urge of compassion is to feel that suffering and want to take care. This quality of turning off to it is called indifference, and it's the near enemy of the Brahma-vihara of equanimity. 
I think Sally talked about the near enemies. This is the near enemy of equanimity, indifference. So we act, different fruits come to us. We can't understand all the details about how they happen, but they happen uh, in certain ways. The Buddha said if you try to figure out how these actions come from karma, you'll uh, experience vexation and go mad. This is one of the four imponderables. Very complicated. But the other thing he said is that, um, or let me put it another way, he never said that everything that happens to us is a result of karma. And he was asked one time, does all the pleasure and pain that comes to a being depend on someone's past karma? And he said, people who say that are wrong. He said, you can look around the world and see other causes of pleasurable and painful feeling. So he mentioned causes like illness, diet, climate, accident, and assault. So these are other operative causes that also bring pleasure and pain to our experience. The law of karma is one more, but it's not the only law. In our current language, we might say there are physical laws, there are chemical laws, there are biological laws, there are psychological laws, and there's the law of karma. So there are many different kinds of cause and effect operating. The law of karma is one, but it doesn't mean that everything that happens to us is because of past actions. Sometimes the law of karma feels very weighty because we're in a difficult situation, difficult circumstance, and I've had people say, you know, I wonder, what did I do that was so bad that got me here? We can't use karma that way because we can never answer that question. We don't know if it was one of our past actions or one of these other causes. So that's like trying to use karma as a rearview mirror. What was on the road behind me? We can't see that. But what we can do is use karma as the steering wheel of where we want to go in the future. So how does that work? This is where karma and emptiness come together. At first glance, these two seem really contradictory, or they did to me anyway, because emptiness says there's no abiding or fixed self in this whole system. And karma says something that you do previously will come back to you. It's not that it comes back to somebody else. It comes back to you. So a monk at the time of the Buddha was obviously confused by this and said to the Buddha, what self then will actions performed by the not-self affect? (laughs) And the Buddha basically said, you haven't been listening to me. (laughs) So actually, karma and emptiness need each other. I think Gil talked about this early on. They require each other for all this thing to make sense at all. So let's talk about how this teaching on not-self interfaces with the teaching on karma. First of all, the not-self teaching doesn't deny individuality. The Buddha's enlightenment solved his problem. It didn't solve ours. So each of us has a body. Each of us has a mind. And although we're we're interdependent, we're also to some extent independent. We each have an individual nature. So I'd like to think a little bit about the image of a stream. The little creek that runs behind the dining hall, we tend to call that the Spirit Rock Creek. And I don't think it has water right now, but it, it will in a few days. It runs really well through the winter. So if you ever sit by the side of a creek and watch it for a while, it's very interesting to reflect on this concept of not-self. A river or a creek is a useful term. You know, if I say Spirit Rock Creek, everybody kind of knows what I'm talking about and where it is, and it's different from the Mississippi River. 
you know, very different. So everybody knows that's the body of water we're calling Spirit Rock Creek. But if you sit down by the edge of it and you look at it, is there anything fixed? First you have to ask, well, what's the creek? So I understand, let's say, for the purpose of this discussion, the creek will be the body of water. You know, maybe in geological terms we should also include the banks, but I want to talk about that body of flowing water that runs between the two banks. Is it fixed when it's running? No. You know that old statement, you never step in the same river twice. It's changing in every moment. There's new water passing through. The water that was here five minutes ago is no longer here at all. So the stream is a really good image for not-self. There's always stuff going on, but it's always changing. It's always new. It's useful to talk about Spirit Rock Creek. We know what we're talking about. It's different from other bodies of water. But if we look in it, there's nothing fixed. So, in some schools of Buddhism, they talk about each of us as a mind stream. Within us, there is always this flow of mental activity, the sankharas of the aggregates, the fourth aggregate, and feeling and perception. Mental factors are happening, emotions are going through, uh, thoughts are arising and passing, and intentions arise and pass. And out of intentions, we sometimes act through body, speech, and mind. So each of us is individual, we're unique, we have a different body of mind stream within us, but they all kind of work the same, and none of them are fixed. So of the objects that are flowing in our mind stream, one of the key ones is this element of intention. Because intention is the core of karma. If we start to bring forth wholesome intentions and we start to not act on unwholesome intentions, that starts to change the flow of the stream. And this is really what the path is about, is choosing what actions are skillful, what actions are not, which intentions we follow and which intentions we don't. And then we start to see that the path itself is a karmic unfolding. The path operates by laws of cause and effect based on the quality of intention and the qualities of mind that we choose to strengthen and the qualities we choose to weaken. So let's say we come into Dharma practice and our mind stream is flowing and, you know, as we all have when we first come, there's plenty of greed, aversion, and delusion in that mind stream and plenty of actions coming out of greed, aversion, and delusion in that mind stream. So such a stream has a certain destination. Let's call it Lake Samsara. (laughs) So our stream's flowing along this mixture of wholesome and unwholesome flowing along to Lake Samsara with our mix of pleasure and pain. And then we start to hear the Dharma. And then we start to drop in new intentions. We start to drop in intentions for loving kindness, for compassion, for wisdom, for patience, for generosity, for stillness for understanding and empathy. And little by little, it starts to change the flow of the stream. It doesn't feel like much in the beginning. But as we keep strengthening those intentions and those qualities start to arise in us, the whole direction of the stream moves in a different way. And instead of going to Lake Samsara, it's going to the Nibbanic Ocean. And the only thing that's changed is our moment-to-moment intention. And when you really think about it, that's all we have to change. That's all we can change. So it's kind of like, for me, coming into the Dharma was like being adrift on an ocean that seemed chaotic. 
And I didn't know where my life was going. I didn't know if it was going toward happiness or not, or how to guide it, or where to go. And I felt like I was really adrift, a little bit lost. And then we start to hear the Dharma and we understand we have a way to steer. We have a rudder on this boat that's in the midst of the kind of chaos of of life. And that rudder is intention. That's how we steer the boat. So we start to direct our attention, intention, toward these wholesome ends. And also then let that, let that be the activity of our inner, inner work of meditation or bhavana. Let that be the guiding force for our outer relationships and actions of speech and body. And then we're in tune with the wholesome side of the law of karma. Speak and act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you like your shadow, unshakable. Now, the only reason that karmic transformation can work is because there's nothing fixed in here from the beginning. If our ignorance was fixed, we couldn't change it. If our hatred was fixed, we couldn't change it. If our suffering was fixed, we couldn't change it. But nothing's fixed. So that's kind of the the message of not-self. Nothing is fixed in here. That's the groundless part. It's a little unsettling sometimes. But that's what makes the possibility of liberation. Because nothing is fixed, we can shape it the way we want. The power to shape our hearts and minds is entirely up to us. It just depends what direction we want to go and how much how many moments of intention we're willing to shape in that way. And that's our Dharma practice. And that's where you see the fruit in somebody like the Dalai Lama who's been shaping it for so long. And you get an idea of the possibility of the degree of development from this shaping process that only happens moment after moment after moment based on this factor of intention. That's the engine of the whole path. So maybe we'll just take a look at a couple of the quotes on page 20. This is one that someone mentioned early. It might have been Sally, number 67. The Blessed One took up a little bit of soil in his fingernail and said to the bhikkhu, Bhikkhu, there is not even this much form that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change. If there was this much form that was permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, this living of the holy life for the complete destruction of suffering could not be discerned. But because there is not even this much form that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, there's one typo, this living of the holy life for the complete destruction of suffering is discerned. So not only is there nothing on the outer form that's stable, even a small smidgen, there's nothing of the inner either. And therefore this transformation of mind and heart is possible. So for karma to be able to unfold in us, we need this foundation of emptiness, the emptiness of self, the openness, the non-fixedness, the non-stuckness. And then as the path develops, we start to see this this transformation taking place. This is a quote from Nisargadatta Maharaj about this process. He was a teacher of Advaita Vedanta. I think died around 1990 in Bombay. He worked in the form of dialogue and somebody was coming to talk to him And in the course of the dialogue, this was a little exchange. Maharaj says to the person, your own will was the backbone of your destiny. Can you get a sense of how that intention, as we understand the shaping, creates a kind of trajectory for our life? Your own will was the backbone of your destiny. And the questioner said, surely karma interfered. Maharaj, karma shapes the circumstances. The attitudes are your own. 
Ultimately, your character shapes your life, and you alone can shape your character. Your character shapes your life, and you alone can shape your character. This is the teaching about intention as our rudder in life. And the Buddha said that when one comes to the end of the path, one who is fully awakened, the arahant, has come to the end of karma. This is a really intriguing idea. I have no idea what it means. He says it in a number of places. And does it mean that there's kind of no self-centered volition happening anymore? Or does it mean that intention is still active, but the fruits of karma are getting burned up really quickly, so there's kind of no result of karma? I don't know. But in the last quotes on uh, page 20, he talks about this process of the ending of karma. In quote 69, these four types of karma have been understood, realized, and made known by me. Which four? There is karma that is dark with dark result, karma that is bright with bright result, karma that is dark and bright with dark and bright result, and karma that is neither dark nor bright with neither dark nor bright result, leading to the end of karma. I mean, this is very cryptic too, but there's this some kind of um, unusual karma that leads to the end of karma, and he calls it neither dark nor bright. And that's explained a little more in passage 70. And what is karma that is neither dark nor bright, with neither dark nor bright result, leading to the ending of karma? Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Or, as he says again in quote 72, it is this noble eightfold path that is the way leading to the cessation of karma. So it's very interesting characterizing the path as neither dark nor bright karma. Because normally one would think of the path as the brightest kind of karma. But he says it's neither dark nor bright. And I, just my intuition, I don't have any strong source for this, except a little of the reference in quote 69. He says, what is karma that is neither dark nor bright, blah, 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 the volition to abandon the other karma. And it's as though in coming into the path, we come into this place of, as Gill described, this deep letting go. Letting go of preoccupation, of obsession, of selfing. Letting go of this controlling instinct that is so integral to the self. Letting go of effort and striving for a result. Trusting more in faith. Letting go of all the mental formations that we're accustomed to generating over and over again. And opening to that place of the stilling of all formations. The abandoning of effort, the abandoning of striving, the abandoning of action and volition. And then from that place where there is so much stillness, so much surrender to the way things are, and perhaps out of that, there's that opening to the deep realization and liberation that is really the end of karma. So let's just sit for a minute together, please. <laughs> 